Acts chapter 8, starting at verse 1. And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to the city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. Where the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralysed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Now for some time, a man named Simon had practised sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he, had, he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them, and for a long time, with his sorcery. But when they believed, Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptised, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptised, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. Where they arrived. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers uh, <coughs> that were there, sorry, that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. Let me take you to the... Uh the continent of the Americas and to South America. The year is 1516 and the Spanish explorer Hernando Cortes is expecting to see savages when he comes across the city of Tenochtitlan, modern day Mexico City. What he found was a beautiful place. What he found was a society that was very rich in technology. There were aqueducts. There were uh, vast construction projects in their midst there are pyramids and a city full of culture and joy and rich resources and by that I mean gold. He had a polite conversation with the leader of the tribe, the leader of the Aztecs, King Montezuma and it was a very simple and brief conversation. I would like your gold or I will take your head. You choose. Montezuma wanted to keep his gold and the Spanish army were not in the mood for messing around. And so sadly they circled the city. They were not looking for sights to be seen, but they were in the mood of conquest. And as they circled the city, within 80 days, they had starved out every inhabitant of Tenochtitlan. That's nearly a quarter of a million people lost their lives at the hands of the Spanish conquistadors. 
The Aztecs were not alone in losing or being defeated by the Spanish army. They were confident with this great victory and so they marched north up to uh, Brazil and beyond. This time it wasn't the Aztecs but the Incas who they defeated in 1532. By the 1680s, the Spanish army seemed absolutely unstoppable. They were in charge of the whole of the southern part of the Americas and, and they were determined just to, to move north and to conquer some more land. They'd heard about the Apaches, a primitive people, a primitive people who uh, had never laid a road in their lives or in their existence. They weren't renowned for their construction projects either and they had no gold but they were worth conquering because they would be excellent slaves in their hands. So the Spanish army came up against the Apaches and tasted something they'd never tasted before. It was defeat. You see the uh, Apache army fought in a very different way to the Aztecs and to the Incas and to the Spanish army themselves. They were not used to lining up and getting muskets and fighting in an organised battle at a certain point at a certain time. No, they were different, the Apaches. Wherever they wanted to, they would fight and then they would retreat. If the Spanish army came and used their considerable force and muskets and might and explosives and, and destroyed a settlement, when it was only tents, they would just rebuild and relocate. There was no central command structure for them to uh, destroy and, the, and, and then the Apaches would just head off into the wilderness. You never knew where the Apaches would attack from. Decisions, you see, were made by everyone, everywhere. In the book of Acts, we've been looking at the first unit, Acts chapter 1 to Acts chapter 7. The gospel has been very much localised and centralised in the uh, in the town, the city of Jerusalem. The gospel was not expanding. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 was not happening. The church was not a sent people. They were a remaining people, enjoying the teaching of the apostles, enjoying one anothering and selling whatever they had in accordance to meet the need of the growing community of up to 5,000 believers, and that's just the men. They were more than that. There was issues of organisation that needed to be engaged with. That's Acts chapter 6. There were widows that needed to be fed and cared for. But now everything changes because of the persecution that we read about in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. In God's purposes, persecution would be used to get out the church from Jerusalem, so they would be the people they were called to be, which is a church on mission, a church of sent ones, a church of Samaria and around the Mediterranean basin and to the ends of the earth, because God gets his church on mission through the most unexpected of means, through suffering and through persecution. And four things to think about, please, this morning. The church is organic in its mission. The church is urban in its focus. The church is manifest. You can see it. And the church is a gospel church. That's uh, four words that summarise what the church is about in Acts chapter 8. It's organic, it's urban, it's manifest, and it's a gospel mission. Let's look at it in turn, shall we? An organic mission, just like the Apaches. 
verses 1 to 4 are very important. What do I mean organic? Look at verse 1. All except the apostles. So this great persecution happens. Stephen is stoned to death. And that's not all. He's not just, not just him. It would have been greater than that. Let's stamp out the church, says Saul, later named Paul. Everybody's scattered. Or is it everybody? Well, look at verse 4. The leaders are remaining, but the church is scattered. Verse 4 says, those who had been scattered, that's everybody, that's the church, but not the leaders. What do they do? They preached the word. Preached, you hear public speaking, that's not what the word is. It's the word for evangelism. And so what it means is, all the members of the church that are scattered out, the leaders remain in Jerusalem, but the church that are scattered out because of persecution with the, the, the power and the indwelling presence of God in their midst, they go out and they take the gospel and they just start to speak about it. Not formalised way, but wherever they were, they spoke, they shared, they began to talk about this person called Jesus, who's the saviour of the world. And notice this is into Samaria. So this is the first time the gospel in the New Testament age, the age of the church, is going to the Gentiles. This is very, very important. It's organic. It's dynamic. I mean, we don't read about the, the strategy meeting that there was in Acts chapter 6. We don't read about that in Acts chapter 8 because it didn't happen. It wasn't a case of the church leadership saying, this is what we're going to do. Let's think carefully. Let's think about resources. Let's think about time and management and oversight. This is organic growth with Christians just doing stuff because of the persecution and the place that they find themselves in, passionate to tell people about this person called Jesus Christ. It's organic, it's dynamic, everybody's involved, apart from the leaders. They're still in Jerusalem at this point. But look down to verse 14, would you? This is the most interesting part, perhaps, of the whole passage. The apostles journeyed 60 miles or so from Jerusalem to Samaria, <coughs> to accredit something that's happening organically. Look at verse 14, what does it say? When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. Let's remember about the apostles, that these were people who, uh, who knew the apostolic truth. They knew the gospel truth. They knew what sound doctrine was and therefore what it wasn't. They were people who acted a little bit like an accreditation board. So when the gospel goes to this new area, 60 miles away, that's a long journey by foot or on horseback or by Uber, if you're paying for it. But the gospel has gone there and they want to see what is happening, what is God doing there, and is it a genuine work of God? It's quality control. Let's use that sort of terminology. It's a unique, it's a groundbreaking situation. And because, although the gospel message has gone out, they did not receive the Holy Spirit, God used the apostles in their apostolic uh, leadership capacity to go and say, this is a true work of God. And in this unique one-off moment, they lay on hands and the Holy Spirit, as it were, descends as a conduit through them to the church in Samaria. It's a true church, it's a true work of God. But isn't it interesting that the mission of the church is not carried out by the apostles? It's by ordinary, everyday believers. And there's thousands of them. 
that God uses to take the gospel out. The gospel belonged not just to the leadership, the gospel was known and enjoyed and belonged to absolutely everybody. And so the gospel goes out in power in a unique, dynamic, organic way. It's not stifled by formality, but there's sound doctrinal truth. It's the gospel truth on the person of Jesus Christ. You killed him, God raised him, we've all seen him. That's the gospel so far in the book of Acts. It's organic, but it's urban as well. It's the second thing, look at verse 5. Very subtle reference, but it's important as we see through the book of Acts to see that the gospel goes out in an organic way, but also in in an urban way. It's an urban mission. What do I mean? Verse 5. We're told Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ. Now remember, Paul, as we, we know something of the whole of the New Testament, Paul was really keen to share the gospel to the ends of the earth. And his, his patch was the whole of the Mediterranean, the Mediterranean basin. So North Africa, Turkey, Greece, Italy, Spain, that kind of circumference. That's where Paul ministered. And if he wanted to reach the, uh, the top five countries on the continent of Africa, he could have said, right, there's five countries there. I'm going to spend five to ten years in each country. I'm going to learn the language. I'm going to learn the culture. I'm going to plant a church. I'm going to create under God and eldership and then I'm going to move on to five to ten years, five to ten years there, five to ten, and so on. It would take the whole of his life, if not more time than he had. So he thought differently under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Rather than doing that strategy of five to ten years and then move on, he did what he did. And what did he do? He went for the urban centres. Look at Philip. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and he proclaimed Christ. It's it's an urban focus around the Mediterranean basin that Paul modelled throughout his ministry and that we see even in in embryo form, let's say that word, through the ministry of Philip. But it's not just Philip, you see it through the rest of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 16, Paul gets this famous vision from God and he says, you must go and reach out to Macedonia. And off he goes and he preaches the gospel in the biggest uh, city in Macedonia, that was Philippi. And there in Philippi, many thousands of people became Christians because Paul knew, if I reach Philippi, I will reach the whole of Macedonia. It's there in chapter 11 of the book of Acts as well. Paul says, if I go to Antioch, which is the biggest city in the area, the economic hub, the cultural hub, the, the hub of learning and of intellect, if I reach Antioch, then I can reach the whole of the area as well. Because thousands of people would come in from the uh, rural setting into the city centre and there they would hear the gospel explained, but they wouldn't remain there, they'd go back to the rural setting and they would take the gospel back to their hometowns. Why? Because Paul says, and Philip models in verse 5, if you reach the city, then you reach the cultural hub, the geographical hub, the economic hub, the hub of language, of of everything, of music. It's a cultural melting pot of culture and society. So if you reach the hub, then you can reach the whole because the gospel goes out to the rural from the urban. See that from verse 5. Ideas always start in the universities and they go out to the culture. People come into the city, then they migrate out often. 
people get educated in the city centres, the university hubs, and then they go out and back to a different part of the region. So if you reach the town, you reach the town. If you reach the city, you reach the region. And so Philip says, I'm going to, verse 5, I'm going down to a city in Samaria. Why didn't you just say, I'm going down to Samaria? Why didn't you say, I'm going down to the town? Because he's strategic and he's thinking. It's organic, but it's not casual. It's organic, but it's also urban. Here's some stats for you. It's widely recognised. This is from the United Nations. You say, what does that mean? It's widely recognised that, apart from lockdown, where many people moved away and they went to the, you know, I'm fed up with the rat race, I want to go to the city, I want to go to the seaside, but it's widely recognised globally that there is a move from rural to urban, from the sticks to the city centres, because it's seen as better health care, as a better standard of living, if you were living in an urban setting. But, don't just think about Surrey, as leafy and as pleasant as it is, globally, this is what's happening. One in three people globally live in slum housing. The UN estimates that in 2007, that was the year when for the first time more people in the world lived in an urban setting than in a rural setting. Just take on one of these facts and, and kind of meditate on it. In 2030, let's think forward, in 2030, it's projected that 28%, that's a third, a third of the people worldwide will live in city centres with at least one million inhabitants. Cities are becoming bigger and more significant. Here's perhaps the biggest interesting fact. Globally, the number of megacities, a megacity is where there's 10 million or more people, will rise from 33 megacities in 2018 to 43 megacities by 2030. In other words, there are tens of millions of people moving from rural to urban. So what? Verse 5 teaches us this. You need churches everywhere. The Bible tells us so. But Christians must remain a deep concern for urban centres of the world. We need to think globally. We need to think carefully. Where churches are planted, they can be planted wherever. There is a great concentration of needy people spiritually that need to be reached with the gospel. But also there are lots of churches and organisations who are thinking carefully and wisely and biblically, just like Philip did in verse 5 of chapter 8, to say we need to have a deep, growing concern for urban centres, for city centres. It's costly, it's painful, it's uncomfortable, but we need to have a heart our urban city centres. It's organic, it's urban. But what did his ministry actually look like, Philip, as he took the gospel to this new, densely populated area in Samaria? There are four things from verses 5 to 8 that show us the, the manifest. That's just a word to say, what did it look like? The manifest mission of Philip. What do I mean? Four words, word, deed, community, reconciliation. Let me prove it to you. First of all, verse 5, word. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. Verse 12, he went and he preached the good news there. It's another way of saying the same thing. To preach Christ is to preach the good news. The good news is only good news if you preach the Christ. They are two ways of saying the same thing. 
There's a body of truth, the apostolic gospel. You killed him. God raised him. We've seen him. That was preached and taught and shared. That's what Philip's mission and the church's mission is always about. But that's not all. It's a word-centred mission. But there's also deed. Deed. Look at verse 7. The ministry of Philip, the ministry of the church, is always word-centred, but it must be accompanied by deed. Verse 7, it says that Philip went and the apostles went and helped people physically. There were paralytics and cripples. There were people with disabilities that when they met the apostles and met the power of God in the apostles, they were no longer disabled. There were no longer paralytics and cripples any longer. That's it says that in verse 7, but that's not all. They also helped spiritually as well as physically. Verse 7, there were also people with evil spirits and they came out at the authority of the name of King Jesus. Physical help, spiritual help. It's so balanced. And the church always struggles to get balance between physical need and spiritual need. You live in a superstitious culture. There is a devil under every rock. Everybody's need is only spiritual and always spiritual. That's not our problem. We live in a materialistic culture. And so we say our problems are never spiritual. We only have problems that a scientist can deal with. But notice how balanced the gospel is. We have physical needs and we have spiritual needs. We have spiritual needs and we have physical needs and the gospel always deals with both the true churches always have a heart to minister to people with both needs but here's the point in the culture in which we live if we are just word people and are not deed people people will not listen to us anymore and the gospel is always word and deed there are actions to back up the apostolic gospel. There's a heart and a passion to minister to people's needs as well as to share with them the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So needs are to be met, spiritual, physical, economical, mental health, material. Look at what's said, verse 6. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs, they listened to him. Notice the order. The words were backed up. By deeds. Friends, when our community in Epsomanuel see us get involved in the lives of people, it will be costly, it will be hard, it will be uncomfortable, it will cost us resources, it will cost us our time and our diaries, and often that's more valuable to us even than our finances. It will be a physical reality and a physical cost to us as we meet people's material needs and also speak to them of the Lord Jesus Christ. But when that happens, verse 6, we pray will happen as well. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs, they listened to him. We need to care practically for people indeed, as well as being prepared and equipped to speak the gospel in word. Here's the third one, community, verse 12. When they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptised, both men and women. Now, just what Simon says. He hears the gospel and Simon says, I believe. 
and he's baptised, but not on the 17th of July in a few weeks' time. Does that mean because he's baptised that he's a Christian? Don't think it does. Look, verse 18 and 19, look down please. It says, the apostles came, and when Simon saw what they were doing, Simon says, verse 18, 19, here's some money, if I pay you, I'd love to have the ability, the skill set to do what you can do. I mean, I've got some game, I've got some power, my Instagram feed is, is increasing, but you've got something different, and I want some of that. Here's my credit card. I just need to have what you've got. That's a paraphrase. Look at what's said in verse 20 to 23 from Peter. You've no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. He's looking right at a baptised person and he says you're not right with God and you're still a captain to sin. Yeah, but they've been baptised, that makes them a Christian. No, it does not. It says this passage and says the New Testament. Being baptised is not an automatically <laughs> saving mechanism. And it's very important to see that. What is baptism? Baptism is not private. It is public. Baptism... Uh, enables you to join. It's a sign, an outward sign that God has worked deeply, profoundly, in a lasting way in your heart. As you say to all the world, I want to live as a Christian, identify with this community. I want to testify to the world what God has done in my life. It means you're part of a community of people that have made the same promise, the same testimony, acknowledging the same power. And now you're choosing to hold yourself, to be accountable to the community that you identify with. Last word, reconciliation. Did you see that? It's not mentioned there, but it's, it's in the whole passage. Let me just draw it out to you. There is a historical beef. That's a modern teenager word. There's a historical beef between Jew and Samaritan. They didn't just play together, they hated each other. There was a deep, lasting, racially motivated hatred. You see, the, the Jews looked down on the Samaritans. They were, they were dirty animals to them. They were ceremonially unclean. They were worse than anybody else. So if a Jewish person came in contact with a Samaritan, they would be ceremonially unclean. They'd have to go and get right before God and get washed up with the priests at the temple. But there's none of that here. It says that Philip went down and they established a church. The Christians were building a church. Where? In Samaria. Because the gospel always breaks down barriers. Racial hatred is removed by the gospel, by the power of God. When they hear the word of God, when they see people loving each other, welcome. I mean, do you really think that Philip avoided touching people as he drove out, as he expelled demons? Sorry, now I'm unclean, I'll come back tomorrow. There's none of that. Breaking down barriers because of reconciliation is what the gospel is all about spiritually. When you hear the word of God, when you see people loving one another, people pay very close attention. We may not agree with what you believe, but we can see something different about your community. And we want to know the reason for the hope that you have. That's what it says in verse 8. In verse 8, it says, very interesting phrase, So there was great joy in that city. Why does Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, not say, 
and the church was full of joy because the gospel is seen in the city and joy was brought to the city. I'm sure there was joy in the church. But non-Christian people are saying, I may not believe in what you believe, I may not share the same convictions, but there's something about you people and you bring a, f- a joy. Why, why, why is there a joy? Not just an emotion, there's a deep-rooted joy. And remember the context is persecution and suffering from verse 1. Why are you so full of lasting joy? You're a blessing to our city. You're a blessing to our area. I wonder what people say about us. I'm so glad you're here. You've blessed our school. You've blessed our workplace. I wonder what people say about us. Now, where does the motive come from for Philip in terms of word, deed, community, and reconciliation? Fourthly, finally, it's in the gospel. It's urban, it's organic, it's manifest, but it's also a gospel mission. Verse 12, please. Down in verse 12, it says, Philip, what's he all about? He preached the good news. He preached the gospel. Verse 13, remember Simon the magician, the conjurer, someone who had some power but not ultimate power. Verse 13, I believe he gets baptised, but when he sees what the apostles do, he says, I want some of that. I'd love to be able to do that and get the recognition that my heart craves from people. What does Peter say? Verse 20, this is the key verse. Peter answered, may your money just perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. This is an enormous strategic front for the gospel. Speaking in military words, a beachhead has been established, a new church has been planted. God could do great things to a new part of the Mediterranean basin through this ministry. And down come the apostles to say, we need to just make sure that you are speaking the true gospel, not false doctrine. We don't want you to go off target or off beam. We don't want you to lead people into uh, dangerous places in terms of spiritual truth. We want you to know the gospel. And the church did, but Simon did not. He still thought he could get right with God if, if he just had the right money. If he just had the right bank balance, then he could have God's power and God's presence and he could make a name for himself. He got it completely upside down. Because verse 20 says, the gospel is a gift. Favour with God can't be earned, it can't be bought, and it's never achieved by your own effort. Salvation is always a gift of sheer undeserved grace because of what the person Jesus Christ did. That's why it says in verse 12, Philip preached the gospel. That's why it says, verse 5, Philip went down in a city and he proclaimed the Christ, because that's the only hope there is for the world. Every other religion says, you want salvation, you want deliverance, this is how you do it. You roll up your sleeves and you work really hard and you behave really well and you go to the right places and you accrue credit. That's how you erase personal shame. That's how you escape from personal guilt. You want a new life? You want a new record with God? This is how you do it. And Philip says, no, that's not how you do it. Verse 20, it's a gift from God. It's a gift from God and it's a person whose name is Jesus Christ because Christ is the gospel. 
Christ is central, Christ is everything, Christ is all. He's your salvation. He's the free gift of God. Why? Because he was your substitute, because he died in your place, because he took what you deserved. Because the painful truth is we all need heart surgery. I'm not talking physically, of course, I'm talking spiritually. We all need heart surgery. And here's the bad news. The operation takes a lifetime because there's so much that needs to be removed and rewired. Philip says, verse 22, you cannot buy this gift. Verse 20, verse 22, you need to repent. You need to turn from your own understanding of who God is and you need to see who he really is. You need to be released from the bondage that you're in and you need to see the free gift of God in Christ and then and only then will the burdens come off. Samaria didn't have any joy until the Christians were scattered. Samaria didn't have any real gospel joy until God sent persecution to get his church out. Think about that. It was really hard on the Christians. They lost their homes. They were pushed out. They would have lost their businesses. They would have had to start over completely again. But until the scattering happened because of the persecution, Samaria had no gospel witness and no gospel joy. But that pattern follows the pattern of Jesus, doesn't it? Jesus couldn't save us unless he was literally scattered and torn apart and separated. He was emotionally, physically, psychologically split into pieces. He died for us so that joy could be given to the world. Gospel joy. We're not going to be a joy to Epsom and Yule, to Stoneley, to the surrounding area, to the ends of the earth unless we're willing to experience the scattering, the pain, to some degree. When you get emotionally involved, will you pull back because it's too costly? When you get financially committed, will you say that's enough? I've got other priorities, often centering around my own comfort. Are you prepared to be scattered for other people so that they receive gospel joy? It will be hard, but only if you're willing to be scattered can there be joy in our city. Joy in our town, joy in our community.